Good evening and welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you from the English service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clote in Washington, D.C. When the regional militia or militaries are involved or accused of committing ethnic cleansing, committing human rights violations as they have done in Romania and other parts of the country, it requires independent bodies really to come look into what's going on. A human rights group calls on the Norwegian Nobel Institute to consider stripping Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of his 2019 Peace Prize. The average Kenyan um, who would be looking at this I think their expectations should be that this should lead towards, um, you know, more opportunities, more jobs, uh, to growth in, in in new areas of growth, like as I said, clean transport, etc. The Nairobi International Financial Center is set to launch on July 4. Every time we have elections, they know what is our issues, but they have not actualized. So bringing your manifesto to say that you bring water, you do this, then it just brings horizontal violence because you're already living in a, in a poor... It's already... It's violence. It is violence. Living in it, you know? And Kenyans worry about electoral violence ahead of the highly competitive presidential poll. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. <laughs> In Ethiopia, a human rights group is calling on the Norwegian Nobel Institute to consider stripping Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of his 2019 Peace Prize. The call comes as concern grows over alleged human rights violations committed by his government. The Oromo Legacy Leadership and Advocacy Association, a human rights and advocacy group, says it has compiled details of violations and extrajudicial killings committed in Oromia. The organization is also calling for the intervention of the international community to ensure peace returns to the country. This, after figures show more than 3,500 civilians have died in conflict in the regional state since September 2018. The calls also come after the Ethiopian government announced the return of peace to Romia following a military operation against rebels. The administration accuses them of committing heinous acts after over 220 civilians were killed in the region on June 18. For more and the latest development, I read Sena Jimjimo, the spokesperson for Oromo Legacy Leadership and Advocacy Association. We believe the Normal Peace Prize Committee, as well as the international community, have a moral responsibility. These two things cannot go together. A Normal Peace Prize recipient who declared war who have brought the country to this level of uh, atrocity should not keep his Nobel Peace Prize. He won the award because of what he had done previously. So why should he lose it as a result of him protecting his own country, as the government says? Uh, Peter, uh, if you allow me, I would love to answer that question. But I want to also come back to really, let's come back to who this prime minister is and how he came to power. For four years, Oromo protested and violence, and he was part of the previous regime for 27 years. They have to bring a leader from the Oromo community. That is how Prime Minister Abiy came to power, on the back of Oromo movement. But as soon as he came to power, the first war he declared was in the south against Oromo. 
he declared a state of emergency in December 2018. And ever since Oromia have been under state of emergency, part of Oromia uh, being governed by military for over three years. Uh, uh, um, a popular Oromo singer were murdered and leading that hundreds of people were killed. Thousands of people have been arrested and they remain arrested there. And the, the darker war, the unspoken war, the state of emergency, the mass atrocity have taken place in Oromia and nobody has said, said anything about that. There are concerns and calls for the UN to investigate the ongoing human rights abuses uh, in parts of the country at the moment in Ethiopia. What is your organization's reaction to that? For two years, we've been calling for independence and investigation. Yesterday, the UN Human Rights Commission or International Commission on Human Rights Experts in Ethiopia gave oral updates. They say, we are extremely alarmed by ongoing atrocity against civilians, and they say, including Romia. So I think right now, the UN is calling for what we have been calling for two years. It is very important that they push for that inclusive investigation across the country, but certainly in Romia, Amhara, and Tigray, as well as Afar, where the greater atrocity have been known, at least have been some level of record happened. So we are finally are happy to hear the international community, such as the UN, calling for investigation in Romia. Yes, there is other atrocity that a lot of people don't know about it outside of Romia happening. So the call for by the UN uh, on yesterday, it could not be any time, it would not be any better time to call for this. 100% we support. We have submitted a lot of data for the UN to do this. We work with the other organizations, uh, such as Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. We have submitted to them a lot of data with accurate information that they can do their own verification. Some people are suggesting that your call for international intervention to resolve the ongoing human rights abuses in the country is an invitation for a political interference of the internal political dynamics in Ethiopia at the moment, which they accuse the organization of being unpatriotic for saying so or calling for that. Your reaction to that? Prime Minister Abiy invited a foreign government, Eritrea, to fight the war against own citizen to which he is responsible as a leader for that country. He invited a soldier from uh, Somalia and other regions. So the moment he did that, he already closed the war. It's not exclusive to Oromia. It is a regional war. Other regional leaders have they participated in it, including the drone that he got from Turkey, from UAE and China and other countries. So the war is not really constrained to just within Ethiopia. So inviting international community to investigate, really it is it's the international community's role when the war gets to this level. When the, this is not just a small uh, conflict between a community. This is the federal government declaring a state of emergency in parts of Oromia long before Tigray. And this is the federal government inviting a foreign militia, a foreign government to support him in this invasion for the war that it commits against the Tigrayan community or Tigrayan people. Therefore, I, I absolutely, as an organization, we disagree with that because at this point, when the federal troops, when the regional militia or militaries are involved or accused of committing ethnic cleansing, committing human rights violations as they have done in Romania and other parts of the country, it requires independent body to really to come look into what's going on. The only credible body that can investigate the atrocity in Ethiopia that the government is accused of it is independent, such as UN uh, party must investigate.
Sena Jimjimo is the spokesperson for Oromo Legacy Leadership and Advocacy Association. She spoke with me from Chicago, Illinois, in the U.S. In Kenya, the Nairobi International Financial Center is scheduled for launch on July 4. It is a flagship initiative under the country's economic plans to meet the East African country's Vision 2030 initiative. The launch makes Kenya's capital city the sixth in Africa to create a center. Officials say the Nairobi International Financial Center aims to focus on fintech, or the use of technology to improve financial services and financial support, or green finance, for environmental initiatives which include attracting large pools of capital. The center was established, officials say, to encourage economic growth, local and international investment and innovation. For more on the anticipated impact the Nairobi International Financial Center will have on Kenya, I reach Oscar Njuguna. He is the CEO of the new institution. The center is a catalyst for growth. It's a new operating environment that will provide an improved business framework to attract new capital and investment into Kenya. And what we want to do is really ensure that we keep making improvements in the framework to attract more capital because we have a lot of uh, requirements and needs to grow our economy, to build new clean uh, green infrastructure across the country. We want to develop our financial technology uh, ecosystem uh, to build on what has been done in mobile money across the country. And we want to have more impact, uh, not only in Kenya, but uh, regionally, to act as a center where more capital investment and opportunities can come into the continent and into Kenya, but then also where businesses and other companies can connect with international investors and institutions and have access to different markets. Nairobi then will become the sixth city in Africa to form an international financial center. What impact do you anticipate it having in the East African region as well as the Central African region, since Nairobi is a hub for these two regions? In terms of impact, we want to support economic growth that is going to lead to more jobs for Kenyans and people in the region because more investment in new technologies and new businesses is going to employ more people. It's going to help us rebound from some of the challenges we've had recently with the impact of, of COVID-19. It's going to provide more access for international firms to engage with Kenyan businesses. It's going to lead to more tax revenue for the government because it's going to lead to more growth and more investment. And I think ultimately, it's going to lead to greener and cleaner sustainable development across the country because we really need to pivot and move towards clean technologies, more renewable energy, and things like clean transport, et cetera, which are areas of focus for us. So uh, the impact is going to be very much on the people of Kenya and on the revenue uh, figures for the government. Does this form part of a government plan or a vision to be actualized in the next few years? Yes, it does. The objective and the goal to develop our country as a, as a regional hub and a financial hub was born in 2008 when we developed the Vision 2030. So what we have been doing incrementally over the years is putting in place certain structures that lead towards this. You know, just this year alone, um, Google uh, has set up its Africa 
um, hub in, in Kenya in terms of um, a research hub. And the same with Microsoft. They've put up a $27 million facility for research, the first in Africa. Uh, the European Investment Bank set up its uh, Africa headquarters in, in, uh, in Kenya um, towards the end of last year. So what we are seeing is uh, an opportunity to build on this growth, this interest, and these opportunities that are growing in the continent um, and, and use the framework that is in the financial center to really pivot that. And you mentioned that other countries have done the same, and I think that uh, there's a reason why it, it is very necessary for us to, uh, in the continent, to create a framework that attracts more capital across the board, not just in Kenya, but in Rwanda, um, in, in, in Morocco, you know, um, across the board, new, new emerging cities that are creating financial centers. And even now I understand Lagos has a plan to do the same. So if I may ask you, Oscar, what should Kenyans expect from the Nairobi International Financial Center after its launch? Kenyans should expect uh, a, a more efficient framework that allows them to grow, innovate, and do business uh, more efficiently, and also to have the opportunities to engage and partner with international firms and businesses that are looking to, to, to do business in Kenya. So as a whole, in terms of the business community, in terms of the manufacturing sector, uh, what we're talking about is real opportunity for engagement and growth. But I think, you know, if you were to look at um, the average Kenyan um, who would be looking at this, I think their expectations should be that this should lead towards, um, you know, more opportunities, more jobs uh, to growth in, in, in new areas of growth, like, as I said, clean transport, etc. Oscar Njuguna is the CEO of the Nairobi International Financial Center. He spoke with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. In Rwanda, government, international organizations, and the private sector have pledged more than $4 billion to help end malaria and neglected tropical diseases by 2030. The move follows a series of pledges that experts say will expedite the progress made in the fight to eliminate malaria and other illnesses. It is the first joint conference on malaria and neglected tropical diseases with heads of state held in Africa. The announcement of the pledge was made at this year's recent Commonwealth Head of State and Government Summit held in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. To learn more about the commitment and how they will support ongoing efforts to combat some of the continent's most entrenched diseases, I reached Dr. Corinne Karema. She is the CEO of the Rollback Malaria or RBM Partnership. So this Kigali declaration has really secured substantial commitment from donor governments and the countries government, pharmaceutical companies, NGOs, and others, including over 1.9 billion U.S. dollars in financial commitment, with uh, uh, 18 billion tablets donated by nine industry partners and uh, 562 million U.S. dollars in other health uh, products. So we, while these commitments are a step in the right direction, we, we are still uh, nowhere near enough of what is needed, but we really hope that countries will commit uh, more 
And then maybe uh, we also had the private sector organization and pharmaceutical uh, that made a range of commitments. So we had, for instance, uh, Pfizer uh, that made a commitment to extend the, its antibiotics donation program through 2030. How beneficial would this be for the people of Africa? And how soon do you expect these pledges to come in? Because usually some pledges are made, but the commitment to put the funds to the intended purpose sometimes usually is lacking. So what, what is clear, it's uh, most of the commitment has already signed on paper. And then under the leadership uh, of the government of Rwanda, we will be able to track those commitments. So, for instance, for the 2.2 billion that are being committed by domestic funding to the global fund, there is already a mechanism that, for instance, for the global fund to give you uh, its part of the allocation, you have to put on the table that money. And those, those are already money that are going to be uh, included in the country's uh, plan of activities in the fight and response of uh, uh, malaria and neglected tropical disease. So, and in terms of uh, uh, the pharmaceuticals, there is already a tracking system and uh, we have also the, the, uh, the, the timeline of uh, how they're going to donate all the drugs as well as uh, the, the, the funding that are, will be uh, uh, for, for, for fighting uh, the, the, the disease programs. You talked about the political will being there. How else will additional funds come in and how far can it go in, in the work or the effort to eliminate malaria to, and the neglected tropical diseases? So, uh, you know, for, 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 for us to succeed and to accelerate the fight against malaria and neglected tropical disease, we need funding. This is what we are working and uh, the, the Kigali Malayan and Neglected Tropical uh, Disease Summit is really pivotal because, because it will also help to leverage the, 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 the upcoming uh, replenishment of the Global Fund, which is targeting to get uh, 18 billion for the fight against malaria, TB and HIV and also uh, strengthen the health system. So this is number one. Number two, uh, there is need of political, as I say, political will and country ownership to effectively use the current resources. So efficiency in the use and implementation of the, the malaria as well as the neglected tropical uh, disease program using the current tools. And then the third one is innovation. Innovation, development on, of new tools. We have seen, for instance, the BioNTech, which is really uh, with the groundbreaking. We are hoping to get already started the testing, uh, the, the, the malaria vaccine uh, RNA, uh, on an RNA messenger platform. That should be maybe one of the innovations that will come to, to help us to eradicate uh, malaria. The Kigali mm -hmm. Summit on Malaria and the Neglected Tropical Diseases, or NTDS, uh, committed over $4 billion in funds committed to end malaria and neglected tropical diseases by 2030. Do you think this goal is pragmatic, achievable, and what steps do you think can further be taken to achieve this as a reality? The Kigali Summit, uh, as I say, was, is a, was a pivotal moment for us to leverage more funding. So we have got a commitment for more than 4.0 billion during the Kigali uh, 
Malayan NTG uh, Summit. We are also having the coming replenishment of the global funds by September, which is targeting to get at least 18 billion US dollar. But what is important is uh, it's, it's, it's important to know that the, 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 the upcoming commitment of the Kigali Summit as well as the, the, the global fund replenishment is a portion of the needed resources for her to eliminate the disease by 2030. Dr. Corinne Karima is the CEO of the Rollback Malaria or RBM Partnership. She spoke with me from the Rwandan capital, Kigali. In Zambia, the founder and executive chairman of WeTech and EB Technologies Group, has unveiled a mobile hydroelectric power generator in the capital, Lusaka. NSC Bualia says his innovation could help resolve the country's electricity power generation and transmission challenges and ensure reliable power to industries and households. The new generator, Bualia says, is efficient, cost-effective, and environmentally sound. The news is generating media attention in the southern African country with comments on social media platforms calling on the government and private businesses to partner with Bualia to help solve Zambia's energy challenges. For more on this innovation and its anticipated impact on helping to resolve energy challenges in the country, I reach Ernest Bualia. Well, this machine um, on the patent is called the Efficient Climate Smart Versatile Hydro Power Generation Technology. Or in simple terms, you can call it the Ernest Bualia Climate Smart Hydro Power Plant Technology. How does it work? One, it's a machine that is cheaper to construct compared to the conventional technology. So meaning that we'll be able to save at least a million dollars per megawatt, meaning that if a country or a company is doing 10,000 megawatts, that's saving $10 billion. That's a game changer. Number two, it's easier to construct. It takes less time. You can spend about one month. So meaning... No feasibility studies are needed because it's a machine that can be located anywhere else, whether underground for security reasons, it can be located underground or inside the building, or it can be put outside the building. The other um, uh, game changer with it is with the automation systems. So the smaller version I've created, uh, which of course I've put wheels on it, imagine hydro power on wheels, uh, meaning that by a press of a button, it's off. By the press of a button, it's on. Then also, of course, it's programmable, taking advantage of the available digital technology that can be programmed when to step, when to stop. Can you produce this to an industrial level that the country Zambia can even and, use? Exactly, Peter. Right now, what I'm trying to do is to... Uh, uh, looking for funds to build a one megawatt. And the game changer with it is that we can design it up to about, the unit can go up to about 20 megawatts. Now, the designs work well in the sense that I have a system, for instance, the way the current system works, a unit for one megawatt, for two megawatts, for five, for 10 and 20. So then, if somebody wants 100 megawatts, that is basically 520 units. And this system is good because you eliminate the transmission cost. In Zambia, for instance, this Zambia Electricity Supply Corporation has over 100,000 kilometers of transmission distribution lines. 
So with this system, it means that if we have 10 provinces, for example, so it's units 100 megawatts for northern. And then if within northern there is a district that requires 5 megawatts, then it's a unit for that particular district. So we are eliminating then the transmission cost. And in Zambia, we lose about 18 to 20% in transmission cost. Since you made your invention public, there has been a lot of traction on regular media in Zambia and then on social media platforms. But have you yes. developed this innovation to the extent that you'll be able to provide uninterrupted power supply to homes and industries in Zambia? Well, since this patent was given to me on the 30th of March, of course, the patent comes in the name of a sitting president. So this, um, this March, uh, just this year, and uh, between now, it's a few, it's a few months, and then um, the good part is that in the process of waiting for a patent to be issued, I was developing a proof of concept prototype, which is very functional at that particular level. And in terms of the physics and the mathematics, it's all sound. And of course, you know, it's introducing a new dimension of mathematics, uh, mathematical application again. Now, I am in the process now of coming up with engineering drawing for different units for five, uh, 10, and 20. So these can be licensed. Or uh, the other model is that if, if somebody with capital comes in and say, hey, can you produce a, a workable 100 megawatts? of maybe 10 units and put up money. Of course, I've come up with a startup as a vehicle to help commercialize my technology. Then that person can have equity or stake in the company. And in that way, then uh, it's easier to, 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 to commercialize, to put my technology to good use. At the moment, we know that Zambia is struggling in terms of funding to the point that uh, half of its budget, more than half of its budget, has to be met by the cooperating party. And we know the indebtedness of, um, of, of, of Zambia. They are very much willing to help, but the capacity to help is not there. Enes Bualia is the founder and executive chairman at WeTech and EB Technologies Group. He spoke with me from the Zambian capital, Lusaka. Is the voice of America, and you are listening to Nightline Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clotty, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightline Africa Sports with Samson O'Malley, and that will be followed by a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs and Music from African Collection. But first, as Kenya heads towards a highly contested presidential election, many are worried about a repeat of deadly violence seen in past votes. The Kenyan group, Mothers of Victims and Survivors, is calling for all sides to maintain peace during this year's polls. For the Juma Majanga reports from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Bena Buluma, also known as Mama Victor, is clutching photos of her two deceased sons at her makeshift home in the Madare section of Nairobi. Election time brings painful memories to the 48-year-old widow. On August 9, 2017, her sons Bernard and Victor Okoth both young men were shot dead following a police crackdown on election protests in the area just a day after the presidential polls. Five years later, the killers still have not been held accountable. If it was my sons who had killed someone on the road, they would have been arrested 
sends Bluma as she fights back tears. But the police who killed my sons have not been arrested to death, she says. And that's what pains me the most. I ask myself, why, she adds. They are all human beings, and the law should serve everyone equally. Madari, one of the biggest slums in Africa, with some of the most densely populated poor neighborhoods in Nairobi, has remained a constant hotspot of election violence. Mary Ann Kasina is the co-founder of Social Justice Center, an organization that advocates for social justice in Nairobi. Every time we have elections, they know what is our issues, but they have not actualized. So bringing your manifesto to say that you bring water, you do this, then it just brings horizontal violence because you're already living in a, in a poor... It's already, it's violence. It is violence, living in it, you know? Mama Victor founded the group Mothers of Victims and Survivors Network to help families seek justice. The group is urging election authorities and participants in the August presidential election to refrain from violence. We want a peaceful election, she says. And that's not all. We, as mothers of victims, we want justice for our children and compensation, she adds. The Kenyan police has been accused of using excessive force in handling past election-related protests. With just over a month to the general elections, the National Police Service says it is prepared to provide a secure environment for the polls to run peacefully. In a statement to VOA, police spokesperson Bruno Schioso said steps have been taken to improve security, including new election security training and additional equipment for officers. Past elections in Kenya have been marred by deadly violence. In the most notorious incident, more than 1,100 people were killed in riots and attacks after the disputed 2007 vote. But as the clock ticks towards this year's balloting, observers are cautiously optimistic that the polls will be peaceful. Juma Majanga for VA News, Nairobi. World Health Organization, WHO, is warning of growing health risks in the Horn of Africa as acute hunger spreads there. Well, Yuri Lisa Schlein has more from Geneva. The World Health Organization's incident manager for the Horn of Africa, Sophie Mace, says urgent action is needed to slow the health and hunger crisis that is sickening and killing increasing numbers of people in the region. WHO has released $16.5 million from its emergency fund for operations there. That due to the acute food insecurity, malnutrition rates are getting higher and higher. And especially children and pregnant and lactating women are very, very vulnerable. There is this synergy between malnutrition and, and disease where malnourished children become more easily sick and sick children more easily malnourished. The World Food Programme warns 20 million people are at risk of starvation as drought in the Horn worsens. Speaking from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, May says the priority is to ensure everyone has access to food. At the same time, she says it is important that health needs are not neglected. 
She warns the risk of disease outbreaks is higher because of a lack of clean water. She says the drought has dried up water sources, forcing people to leave their homes in search of food, water, and pasture for their cattle. Consequently, she says, people are more likely to get sick as their living conditions deteriorate. And we are seeing a, a spike in, in disease outbreaks. Uh, we are looking at measles, Djibouti, South Sudan, Somalia, Sudan, cholera and acute watery diarrhea in Kenya, in yeah. South Sudan, in Somalia, meningitis, hepatitis E, to name but a few. MACE appeals for international support to help WHO provide needed care to severely malnourished children. She says it is crucial to respond to disease outbreaks quickly, to have sufficient supplies of drugs and equipment available, and to ensure children receive needed vaccines. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. It's now time for Nightline Africa Sports and for that, let's join Samson O'Malley. Hello, Samson. Hi, Peter, and good evening, sports fans. Welcome to Nightline Africa Sports. We begin with the Women's African Cup of Nations. Host Morocco got their 2022 Women's African Cup of Nations campaign off to a winning start with a hard-fought 1-0 win over a gallant Burkina Faso side at the Prince Maole Abdullah Sports Complex. The Atlas Lionesses were made to sweat for their win in the tournament opener in Group A, but ultimately got the job done with captain Ghislaine Chibak's goal in the 29th minute enough to give the host a narrow win. Three matches are scheduled to be played today. In the early kickoff, Senegal will square up against Uganda women in Group B while Cameroon will trade tackle with the Copper Queens of Zambia women. The late kickoff will involve the game between Tunisia and Togo women. Staying with the Women's African Cup of Nations, President of the Confederation of African Football, Dr. Patrice Musepe, has announced an increase of 150% in prize money for the Women's African Cup of Nations Morocco 2022. President of CAF made the announcement at the opening ceremony of the 2022 Women's African Cup of Nations Morocco 2022 on Saturday. We are bringing this competition for the first time in Morocco and we have increased the number of nations to 12 and we have also increased the prize money for the women's competition by 150 percent so the winning nation will get 150 percent more than they received in the past the overall prize money of the competition has been increased from 975,000 US dollars to 2.4 million dollars, an increase of almost 1.5 million dollars. The winner of this year's edition of the Women's African Cup of Nations Morocco 2022 will pocket 500,000 dollars, a 150% increase of 300,000 dollars. Previous winners of the competition received $200,000. The price money for runners-up has almost doubled from $175,000 to $300,000 and the semi-finalists will get $225,000 each which has increased from $125,000. African Taekwondo Union President Isiaka Aidi has been returned as head of the National Olympic and Sports Committee of Niger. Aidi faced a challenge from Secretary General Isiofo Amado Tijani 
Ajani for the presidency but was re-elected for another four years in charge. ID had led the National Olympic and Sports Committee of Niger since 2014 and this will be his third term as president. Nigerian-born New Zealand professional mixed martial artist and kickboxer Israel Adesanya overcame American Jared Kanonier by unanimous decision to retain his UFC middleweight title on Sunday. Both fighters came into the bout with impressive records, but after five rounds, Israel remained undefeated in the category and even had the time to call out a likely next opponent, Alex Pereira, who shared a UFC 276 fight card. Adesoya, in his Octagon interview, acknowledged Kanonier's game plan, which had made things a little difficult for him, but was excited to have defended his title for the fifth time at the UFC 276. And I'll tell you one thing, they had an excellent game plan. It was really hard to get my follow-ups going, my second phase is going, because they had a good game plan, and Jared is a fortitude in his mind. And now to East Africa, where Uganda will send a team of eight badminton players to this year's Commonwealth Games, due to start on the 23rd of this month in the city of Birmingham. Four males and four female players made the selection. Seven of the players will be participating in the Games for the first time. Experienced Brian Kassirye speaks of his motivation ahead of the tournament. I have that experience, I have that exposure with me, I have that self-confidence in me, that self-esteem. I believe in myself. Uh, I don't give up. That's why uh, I'm not scared to any situation when it comes to badminton. Junior player Fadila Mohamed expects nothing more than garnering experience from the games. I'm still a junior and I'll be facing world top seeds, world seniors in this Commonwealth Games. And uh, it would be a really nice experience for me to play against them and uh, learn more from them and help me prepare better but of course I'll go and play them with all that I can give because I have nothing to lose I will just go and fight fight my heart out there and in Kenya Athletics Kenya has selected 30 athletes who will represent the country at the World Under 20 Championships in Cali Colombia Athletics Kenya president retired general Jackson Tway while addressing the athletes on Saturday tipped the newly selected team of junior athletes to retain Kenya's World Under-20 Championships title for the third time. Kenya topped the standings with 11 medals, 6 gold and 4 silver, 1 bronze in Tampere, Finland in 2018 before successfully defending their title on home soil three years later when in 2021 they clinched 16 gold, 8 gold, 1 silver and 7 bronze medals. And that's it for this week's edition of Nightline Africa Sports. Back to you, Peter. Thanks a lot, Samson. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. We'll link up with you again next Sunday for another look at African sports. Nightline Africa Sports. Now let's take a closer look at Africa, the problems, the prospect in time of conflict, in time of peace. Here's one man's point of view with Dr. James Jonah former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. Hello, Dr. Jonah. Good evening, Africa. Once again, the people of the Sudan, particularly the youth, are sadly being killed in major confrontations with the military. Both sides, the military and the civilians, are engaged in a titanic struggle to determine the future development of the Sudan. In an earlier phase of the struggle, the military joined civilian protests 
to oust the Bashir regime. Then followed difficult negotiations that produced a transition government composed of the military and civilians. But with the passage of time, it developed that there was a deep distrust between the military and the civilians, and the military finally took over with the retreat of the civilians. We are now in that stage. The current protests in the Sudan are demanding that the military should return to the barracks and that some military officers should be persecuted for the killing of civilians. At the same time, there is great evidence that the military is digging their heels and they are not prepared to give way to the civilian protests. This shows there's an impasse and there are no easy solutions available at the moment. In this situation, the African Union they want to consider an arrangement that may involve the League of Arab States and the Islamic Conference. These three institutions should decide on a tripartite initiative that will involve consultations with the people of the Sudan on the broad basis, different regions, not only those in the capitals or major cities. They should receive support first from the protesters and from the military to conduct such consultations. And they should also ask for ceasefire while they move. The purpose of these consultations will be to obtain agreement on a consultative conference. And that conference should be able to determine, one, how to move to elections for a civilian government. Secondly, they should determine a brief period for the transition. And thirdly, on the electoral process for such civilian elections. In this instance, the United Nations may be able to assist and to follow the procedure they did when Namibia was considering its independence. The agreement should be reached that for the time being, the military will remain in the transition, a brief one, to be agreed, and also to limit the range of his decision-making in that transition. This seems to be the only way that one can break the impasse. It is not likely that an agreement will be reached with the military for an immediate transition from protest to a civilian rule. As we have seen last Friday in Libya, when Libyan youths became so frustrated that they stormed the parliamentary 
in Tabruk and in other cities for the long winding negotiations involving the United Nations and others for elections in Libya. It is not easy to determine who should participate in elections. So this consultative group in the Sudan will be able to assist if an agreement is reached. And it will also be known that the transition government will consult regularly with such a consultative group until elections are held. This may not be a panacea for the situation in the Sudan, but for the time being, it seems to be one possibility. I thank you. That was one man's point of view, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. It's Sunday on Nightline Africa, and this is the time we get to relax and reflect. A flashback with music from the continent.
our Sunday music spot. Hope you enjoy the music from Nightline Africa here at the English service of The Voice of America in Washington. Nightline Africa comes to you from the English service of The Voice of America. Hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know by now, on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nylon Africa team, including Saida Hamdoun, we say a big thank you for joining us tonight. And remember, as the elders say, no matter how long the moon disappears, someday it must shine again. I'm your host, Peter Clotte in Washington. Good evening, Africa. (music) 